It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Well, hello. Fancy seeing you here. Uh, this isn't Matt Chorley. Luke Jones sitting in on the Times Redbox podcast. All this week, you'll be pleased to hear. Ahead on the programme, we are marking 100 years since the Anglo-Irish Treaty. It was signed in the early hours of the morning in 1921. It established uh, the Free Irish State. I mean, it's led into the Irish Civil War, but we'll be looking back on that history and the shadow it casts on our current politics and relations between Ireland and the UK as well. First, though, our top columnists, Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis. Rachel, let's start with the drugs thing, shall we? Uh, not, I guess, the, the scoop in the Sunday Times yesterday, but all that's been announced today by the government. We were just hearing from, from somebody from a drug policy charity say saying they were actually a bit disappointed with this and they'd have liked to have seen things like drug consumption rooms and even, you know, those those systems whereby people get um, basically given heroin to, to, to sort of help them through their addiction rather than being criminalised for it. What did you make of what was announced? Well, I feel like the government still hasn't resolved whether they're seeing this as a health or a criminal justice issue. Uh, and the idea of taking people's passports and driving licences away just feels like a gimmick to me. It's not really dealing with the substantive problem. I mean, there is an issue that, uh, you know, people who buy fair trade coffee and eat vegan burgers to save the environment are then quite happy to um, take drugs, which mm. have got enormous social consequences for the young people involved. Woke but it coke, doesn't the feel, sun calls it. Yeah, it doesn't feel as if the government is really um, taking that, he- tackling that head on. I mean, I've been out with the gangs unit in Hackney, uh, and these are the kids who are going, being sent out on county lines. And these kids are incredibly vulnerable. They are mostly being excluded from school. Many of them have got enormous social problems at home, mental health, addiction in their families. Uh, and they're the victims here as well as the perpetrators. Uh, Libby? More, in fact, more than the perpetrators, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, Libby, what, what do you think? Too, too much a, a criminal issue and not so much a health one? No, I think because of the what they might call the middle class, you know, the recreational drug habit, I think it absolutely has that has to be handled as well. I agree with Rachel. Of course, it's a health issue for a lot of people, you know, and, and treatments and so on. But I love some of these ideas. I'm not quite sure about the passports and driving licenses, though driving licenses would be a good one to take away. Um, but I do love the idea that police are going to phone people whose numbers yeah. are found on drug dealers' <laughs> phones. This is going to be the most... It's going to be that if ever there was a chance for a podcast, this is it. I mean, can you imagine? Well, yes, I, I was in touch with a young man. Of course, he, he did some decorating for me for a, for a time, I believe. You know, um, uh, uh, uh. you could see that. I think the I think the exposing and embarrassing is, you know, that's one of the things which does work on middle class people. And I hate the fact that 
as as Rachel says, some of these people are absolutely happy to support a disgusting international exploitation industry and crime in their mm. own areas. They're happy to support it because it kind of makes them feel good. And what's the trouble? And oh, getting a bit off your face from time to time is good for you. It's better than drink, mm. and so on. I think that that has to be stopped. But I just do love the idea of the. I mean, I want I want the police podcast. I want these all to be absolutely broadcast. Sounds like you're volunteering to make the phone calls, Libby. <laughs> Hello, it's PC no, Purvis no, here. No, 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 no. It's got to be a really frightening sounding, very official, rather flat, flat policeman yeah. who, who does this. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And I could, I could cast it from various actors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Rachel, Possibly not Lawrence Fox. No, no, definitely not. Um, but Rachel, are we being sidelined in this? Because as you say, it isn't the issue with drugs elsewhere in terms of, um, you know, people with serious dependency issues and health issues and not necessarily people who, like Michael Gove himself has, has admitted in the past, would sort of take cocaine recreationally yeah absolutely and there's a really serious problem there and also with these kids who are getting dragged into the county line so there's one story i heard um speaking to one of the charities who worked with these county lines kids there's a little boy who was trying to hang himself with his school tie in a park in one of these provincial towns he's a 10 year old boy he'd lost the drugs on the train on the way to to mm, give them to the yeah. local dealers in this park um and he, you know he was too terrified to go back to london to tell the gang elders that he'd lost the drugs and, and there needs to be much more done to help these poor children who are getting sucked into this yeah. vile industry but that is that is what the the, the middle class drug users users are are actually supporting, and they should be yeah. reminded yeah. they're supporting that. And we should say, uh, that, I mean, I know about the kids because I live in Suffolk, and the you know county lines are starting to make serious inroads in some of the schools here. But it's also adults with learning disabilities who can actually cope with life generally, but they get sucked into it as well, and they yeah. tend not to be suspected, you know, because people sort of think, oh, poor old, you know, doesn't really know what he's doing, and I mean. I mean, that's terrible because when they do fall into the police, you know, it's horrific and they may not have even totally understood what it was they were doing. So it's, yeah, the, the county lines thing and the dealerships, the whole networks need, uh, need uh, you know, need serving as well as the health needs of real mm. addicts. And what about, just finally on this, the uh, the issue within the walls of the, of the, of the uh, House of Parliament with this, Rachel, you're around Westminster loads. Is this something that's like an open secret that you just sort of know that there are some MPs who are massive cokeheads? Well, I think it's your caller who said it's uh, not just the MPs is right. There's definitely yeah. a culture um, among some special advisors, staff. I mean, not not to point the finger at anybody in particular or any particular group, but there is definitely it's a high pressure, high octane uh, environment. Uh, and as in any high pressure, high octane environment, whether that's in the city or the law, uh, you know that that drugs exist um, and I, media you know, media and absolutely. media yeah sure well we're thinking about badly behaved colleagues um libby you must have you must have seen some quite sort of drunk or drugged up colleagues at some point have you ever sort of witnessed any of this kind of behavior in any work that you've done we once had a guest who wouldn't speak to anyone in the hospitality room and then went off to the gents and came back incredibly extrovert. Oh. <laughs> we did wonder about him. But, yeah, I mean, we we know, you know, when people do traces of, you know, whether there are, are lines of cocaine on the top of lavatory systems and so on, you know, media organisations, the BBC, 
probably other organizations, newspapers, uh, that's there as well. I mean, the, those yeah. are the people we're talking about because people are stressed. People feel very stressed and think, oh, this, this makes me, it makes me cleverer. You know, it makes me better. It makes me more lively. You know, not, not everyone does it naturally like you, Luke. <laughs> Bless you. Um, moving swiftly on. Um, Rachel, tell us what you make of the other front page of the Times this morning, this new uh, battle potentially on the cards between uh, the government and the judiciary. Uh, Tom Newton Dunn reporting that the Prime Minister is planning to let ministers throw out legal rulings in some kind of new interpretation bill that would come each year to let them pick and choose what, um, what bits they like that, have, that has come down from the courts. I think this is really worrying and I think the government will have an almighty fight on its hands if it tries to do this, particularly in the House of Lords where you've got senior figures from the you know, former law lords, senior judges, former judges, um, and they will absolutely fight this tooth and nail because the judiciary is, an, is a really important kind of check and balance on the power of the executive in the government um, can pass laws as long as it can get them through Parliament, but then it is for the judiciary to interpret those laws. And I think it's, I think it's this kind of attack on the institutions, if you like, which keep the checks and balances on the executive, is really dangerous. Uh, and it's a kind of populist gesture, if you like. Maybe this is just some more saber rattling, you know, after the row over the prorogation of parliament etc but i i think it's a the fact that the government thinks this is something good even to boast about is is bad in my opinion libby is this saber rattling or, or genuinely dangerous I think Rachel's right. I mean, it, it, it is genuinely dangerous. And obviously, there's a suspicion that the government is sucking up to the mail on Sunday, who it may need in the run up to the election, you know. Uh, however, I did think that it was very odd, that summary judgment in favour of the Duchess of Sussex, especially after she was revealed to by Jason Knauf to have actually, you know, finessed this letter, you know, for the press, you know, mm. saying daddy and all the rest of it. That seemed to me like a bad judgment. But that is no excuse to up. Mm an entire system uh, which, uh, you know, to create, create a situation where government can overrule judges in, in all matters. I mean, that seems like a you know, sledgehammer to crack a nut. You know, they could just simply say, well, this seems to us a shockingly bad judgment and so on. But uh, I, I, I think there's, it, it's, it's far, too, far too big a change to make uh, to be justifiable. Libby, um, tell us about your column in the paper today. Uh, it's in the opinion pages. Uh, the pill is a blessing, but all blessings are uh, mixed. It's a, it's an, it's, I'm right to think it's the anniversary of the, of the oral contraceptive pill. It's the 60th anniversary of it really starting to be used regularly in this country. And, and I just wanted to run through a bit of the history. At first, it was allowed only to married women who had already completed their families and to women in great danger. And then it kind of moved down to be just about anybody married, unmarried. And then it moved down to being even under 16s without parental consent and so on. And I think, I mean, it's a, it's a revolution. It's, it was the industrial revolution of sexual behavior and attitudes in this country. It was a huge huge thing. And we tend to look at things like the internet, you know, what has it done to us? How has it changed us? How much of it is good? And what should we look back at how it was before? And the same with the Industrial Revolution, you know, how, how much damage is it doing to the planet? How much damage does it do to individual workers and so on? And I think you need to look at all these things. And I think there was just one or two points about the, the modern pornification of women, you know, the idea that sort of sex is actually nothing. It's just like going to the gym, you know, or having a swim. It 
doesn't mean anything uh, because it's been detached so efficiently from the likelihood of reproduction. I just think it's interesting to look mm. at these things. I'm not laying down any particular moral line or certainly not saying we should go back before the pill, God help us. But I just think it's interesting sometimes to look back, you know, and when you hit the age I am, I've done seven decades now, it sort of gives you, it gives you a nice perspective and, and shocks and irritates the young. And that's quite nice, really. Rachel, what do you make of this? Did you recognise that, that revolution that, that Libby describes there? Absolutely. And it was sort of liberation for women, wasn't it, by separating, as, as Libby says, the reproduction from sex. Women were in control of their bodies uh, in a way you know, that just wasn't the case before. Uh, and it, sex was just some, could be something fun. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it is the same, as Libby says, with the internet. It's up to us how we use that freedom and that power doesn't have to it's 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 neither a force for bad nor a force for good it's a it's a it's a fact um and a bit like you know social media or whatever but then it's up to people how you create a culture Mm. from that well, one of, the, one of the bits of the culture, though, is that it became absolutely women's business, not men's. The presumption was, you got yourself fixed up, haven't you? You're fixed up, haven't you? And some men didn't even ask. You know, the assumption was it was all women's business. And that wasn't quite the case before, if you look back at the, at the 20s and 30s, you know, when sexual behaviour was, was quite wild. But men were more worried about it. I think it took a lot of the worry off men and laid it entirely on women. But still lots of... Uh, oh, quite... could... oh, go on, Rachel. No, you could say that that gives the power to women. They can decide and it's in their hands. But I see what you mean. It's, it's, um, men can abdicate responsibility. It can mean some strange, awkward questions, though, can't it, Libby, as you describe? In the, in the piece. Awkward, which awkward questions are these, Luke? Uh, open, open your life to us. <laughs> well, I shall read it to you. You say, uh, I remember being insulted already at work and earning by being handed a startlingly large pack of free condoms to, quote, tide me over till the chemicals kicked in. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, I just felt a bit insulted at the time. I was very young and very independent. And I said, look, I can afford my own, you know, save the government money, for God's sake. And they said, oh, no, no, you must take them, you must take them. And I thought, if they think that I'm just going to go spraying babies all over the place as a, char- as a charge on the public purse. You know, how dare they presume that I don't know how to regulate my life? Um, so, yeah, there was that. And there's also there was the, the business of men really saying you're on the pill. So do it with me. You know, um, it doesn't make any difference. You know, uh, and, and the, the, oh, yeah, but there's, there's always been bad behaviour. There's always bad human behaviour and good human behaviour. I'm just saying when you look at a big industrial revolution type technical change, internet, industrial revolution, the pill, you should sort of look at it and say, how are we going to treat this? Yes. How are we going to be with it? Um, let's finally talk about uh, hidden hobbies. because There's a fantastic oh, yeah. story in the papers today uh, about a guy called Simon George. He's a train fanatic. He spent eight years building Britain's biggest model railway um, as a way to indulge that passion. Uh, but he had to keep it secret from his girlfriend. Um, he kept it in the dark from her for years, Libby. This story, we have not been told how she reacted uh, when she found out. I think it's wonderful. I love people with hobbies. But I also love the idea of of her suddenly finding out what he had been doing. She knew he rented a basement somewhere. Uh, and assumed Which you'd he was a wine merchant. Well, quite. I assumed he was a wine merchant. I mean, that's not what I would assume straight away if I thought a man had a secret basement. But maybe I just read too many tabloids. I don't know. Um, no, I, I, we, we haven't been told. I mean, it's the, I hate the missing 
thing in a story. What did she say? I need the interview. Get it now, Luke. You're a hack. Get it. Get her on Times Radio. But, Rachel, well, we learned that uh, George, who's, who's 53, uh, gave up his job to spend more time on his uh, ultra-realistic train set. Thoughts? Well, also, that, that his job, he sold his share in a company that was running supercar experiences or something. So he's obviously a complete transport fanatic. So he's gone from supercars to model railways. Um, but I'm, I'm with Libby. I love the idea that someone has a passion for anything, even if it's in a dark and dingy basement hidden from his partner. Yeah, but even though, you, as Libby said, questions, if someone said <laughs> that I... <laughs> I'm just going to continue with my and hobby, my dark... Beneath, yeah. beneath the model railway. <laughs> exactly. Quite strange. Um, either of you got any sort of particular hobbies like that? Any of you building trains in basements? Libby, are you up to that kind of thing? No, I wish I had a craft. All through lockdown, mm. I wished I'd do something with my hands. I took to jigsaws because I needed to use my hands and eyes in a different way. Um, no, I would love to have that kind of a secret a secret hobby. I mean, I've got a husband who does wood turning and amateur photography, and, and uh, yeah, even when he was working, and, and amateur radio, ham radio. He does all that stuff. It, I can see how happy it amateur makes Amateur radio, him. as in a making But all one. I do, I just, I just sort of type stuff out. I have thoughts and type them out, and people sometimes pay me for them. How dull. And sometimes, yeah, I, I wrote novels for a bit, you see, and, and that, that was quite nice. But a craft is a wonderful mm. thing. And to look at a model railway and know it was you that built it, I mean, fantastic. <laughs> um, Rachel, uh, what about you? Have you got, are you building a sort of model airplane somewhere? <laughs> I wish I was. I was like Libby. I did do jigsaws and lots of gardening in the lockdown. But family, work and friends is basically more than 100% of my time. That was our columnists Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis. Coming up, how two sides who have been at war for many, 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 many years could actually sit round a table in Downing Street and come up with an agreement. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now it's time for this. First, it's 100 years since one of the most important agreements in Irish history. The Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed on this day in 1921 at 2am. It created an independent Irish free state within the British Empire, but just over six months later, the Irish Civil War began. We will take you through the history, how that agreement came to be and how it affects relations and politics to this day. We'll hear from historians, a former UK ambassador to Ireland. First up, though, the current Irish ambassador to the UK, Adrian O'Neill. Good morning. Morning, Luke. How are you? Very good, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Um, First of all, you're you're marking this anniversary in the embassy today. You're dramatising it. Yeah, that's right. We have... uh, um, 
today will be the final of seven performances uh, that we've had over the recent over recent days. Uh, a, won a wonderful play written by Colin Murphy uh, and presented by an Irish theatre company called Fishamble, uh, called uh, strangely enough uh, the Treaty, which uh, in 90 minutes kind of dramatises the story of the treaty negotiations between. October and the 6th of December 1921, because it was on this very day, 100 years ago, that the treaty was actually signed. Uh, in fact, the treaty 100 years ago today, the treaty would have been nine hours old because it was signed at 2 a.m. Uh, on the 6th of December. It's a very, it's a very powerful play, and it conveys really well, um, not just the, the politics of 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 the of the of the experience, but also kind of the emotions um, and you know the personal dimensions as well. Uh, and the growth of trust between the negotiators and also the internal divisions on both sides as well. Um, so it's a fascinating and very powerful play. Well, we've got a clip of it. Let's have a listen. We have been talking to you for two months on the basis that you are plenipotentiaries. I have given Sir James Craig my word that I will send him the conclusions of these negotiations tonight in time for the opening session of the Northern Irish Parliament tomorrow. That's hardly a fixed deadline. I gave him my word, Mr. Barton. I will sign. For yourself or for the delegation? I speak only for myself. Though everyone else refuses, you will nevertheless agree to sign. That is so? That is not enough. We shall sign as a delegation. We stake the life of the government on our signature. Are you prepared to do the same? Those who do not sign must take full responsibility for the war that will immediately follow. That's a slice of the treaty, a new play by Colin Murphy, as uh, Adrian Neal was just explaining for us then. And, and Adrian, do you think some of the sort of the approach to this issue and that disagreement, which was apparent then uh, 100 years ago, is missing in how things are dealt between uh, the uh, Ireland and the UK now? Thinking of, of current disagreements as well. Yeah, well, I suppose, Luke, um, you know, it, it, the treaty was represented, obviously, the, the establishment of the Irish Free State, the, the establishment of, of Ireland the first time as an independent state. Um, and we've now had the first century of the relationship uh, between an independent Ireland and the UK. Um, I mean, it, it would be wrong to say that somehow the treaty kind of you know, was, was a prelude to a kind of a, a happy ever after mm. relationship. Um, across the Irish Sea. Um, uh, I mean, it, obviously, it, 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 it split the Republican movement back in Ireland. It led, it led to civil war back in Ireland. Um, there was continuous trouble and violence in Northern Ireland. And the relationship between the British and Irish governments remained tense for many decades uh, afterwards. I mean, for many decades, we were, we were neighbours, but we, we still weren't friends. Um, um, and, but I think what's happened in the meantime uh, is that you know other developments have occurred? We've we've built on that relationship. We've had other agreements, for example, the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985, the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, which have helped to evolve the relationship and deepen the relationship. Um, and but it continues to be a work in progress, and we continue to have 
challenges in the relationship which we have to try and manage together. And in terms of what is still a work in progress, of, of course, the the key issue at the moment is the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, which is still being debated. Lord Frost from the UK side uh, has said the UK's position is still that it would use Article 16 of the protocol to basically suspend parts of the deal if solutions cannot be found on the issues being negotiated. What do you think of, of that threat being being dangled over the negotiations still? Well, I mean, I think we must recognise that that you know um, we we all respect you know the decision of 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 the of the British people on Brexit and to leave the European Union. But equally, we I think we have to recognise that that decision had consequences, and one consequence was that you know it 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 disturbed the Good Friday Agreement, the settlement of the Good Friday Agreement, which we, which had been reached in 1998. And I suppose since the Brexit referendum, what we've all been trying to do, the UK, the EU. Um, uh, has been to find a solution to that to that disturbance, um, and you know, searching for that solution uh, has caused a significant amount of you know strain uh, in political relations uh, across these islands. Um, we thought we had found a solution uh, in the Northern Ireland Protocol that was agreed two years ago between the UK uh, and the European Union, um, but that's now being that's now being challenged, and I think what we need to do is to work through those difficulties and to see if we can find solutions that have that are agreed by both sides. And I think one thing that we have learned over the years from British-Irish relations is that you know unilateral moves um, by one side or other uh, will not work and will only impose further strains on, on the relationship. So we certainly hope that going forward, the approach being taken won't involve any kind of unilateral moves but that we will continue the dialogue that's ongoing between the UK and the European Union to look for agreed solutions that, you know, work for all sides. Thanks very much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Adrian O'Neill, um, Irish ambassador to the UK. Um, let's go back then and, and fill in some of the, the history of the Anglo-Irish uh, Treaty. Dr Margot O'Callaghan is a historian at the Institute of Irish Studies at Queen's University, Belfast. Margot, welcome. Thank you. Um, could you set the scene uh, for our listener who doesn't know much of the history about this and uh, describe the circumstances in which these these two parties actually got round the table? Well, they'd been, I suppose, at war for two years. Uh, in 1918, at the election of 1918, the Sinn Féin party won a majority of seats. They withdrew from Westminster and they set themselves up as Doyle Aaron and declared a republic. So for the following two years, uh, this was viewed as um, an usurpation by the British government. And we had what we call the British-Irish or Anglo-Irish War. So the treaty is an attempt at a resolution to an irretrievable breakdown in relations between what had been a part of the United Kingdom and what now declared itself to be an independent republic. Mm. And in that period... Uh, the British government had set up and established separately uh, a rather new constitutional development, this six-county entity called Northern Ireland. Uh, and that in itself, I suppose, was problematic because even though there'd been talk before the First World War of some special provision for Ulster, nobody had really thought that a Northern Ireland would be established six counties of the historic province with its own government. Mm. And uh, that's kind of important for the treaty. And in terms of, first of all, what each side wanted 
out of this uh, negotiation in the end. Um, what did they come to the table with and actually how did it shake down? Well, the British had red lines of what they were not prepared to go beyond. They, Ireland had to remain within the empire. The king had to remain uh, within the constitution. Uh, Dominion was going much further, Dominion status, mm. than they would have intended to in the first place. And they also had to keep Craig in Northern Ireland, who just got this six-county entity, somehow happy. So, so that was the, from the British point of view. From an Irish point of view... They wanted the Republic, but realistically, they probably weren't going to be permitted to get it. They wanted some control over an army, but given their location in relation to British sea power, that was questionable. They really didn't recognise that this entity that had just been established six months later in Belfast could be permanent. So they did not want a partitioned Ireland. So they're kind of incompatible aims from the two separate parties, mm -hmm. if you like. So how did negotiations go then? And how did it actually end up being the case that, you know, um, they didn't get everything they wanted, especially in, in terms of what you're saying there about the border? Well, the Irish probably got a lot more than it looked like they could have got three or four years earlier. Uh, they did get control over an army, they did get, or to a limited degree, they did get dominion status. They got an entitlement to be a free state. Michael Collins described it as the freedom to achieve freedom. They believed that through the boundary commission of this treaty, that there would be probably plebiscites on within that area of Northern Ireland, that the six counties would not remain separated. That may have been delusional thinking, but that is what they believed from the text of the agreement mm. in December. But I mean, it caused a civil war because there were conflicting ideas about what could uh, or could not have been achieved from these negotiations. And those who signed the agreement, in particular Griffith and Collins, believed it was as much as they could get given the constraints within which they operated. And just explain how that went from a disagreement, well, first of all, within, within the sort of negotiating team, but then in, in politics in Ireland, and how that actually led to, to, to civil war. It takes a long time. I mean, the, 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 the plenipotentiaries come back with this agreement. It's debated in Doyle Aaron. It, it, a majority in Doyle Aaron support it. Now, there is a drift towards civil war, from January, February, 1922, but it's a very gradual drift. There's an attempt uh, at compromise. Uh, Michael Collins tries to hold so-called packed elections, uh, but there's a very much a, a kind of a dictation from London as to how the treaty should be implemented. So you've someone like Collins constantly backtracking and trying to pull over de Valera and his opponents to his side by making the new constitution as desirable to them as possible. But at the same time, Winston Churchill has come in behind Lloyd George and he's almost taking over from Lloyd George. And he's constantly reminding Collins and Griffith that they hold their power by virtue of the treaty. And if they don't implement the treaty and take on their opponents within their new territory, well, then they will no longer be in a position to control that territory because the British will move back in. Yeah. 
Fascinating stuff, Margaret. Thank you so much for, for taking us through it. I really appreciate it. That's Dr Margaret O'Callaghan, a historian at the Institute of Irish Studies at Queen's University, Belfast. Well, what about the, the politics that this has informed now, a 100 years later, across this um, first century of, of Ireland, as, um, as Adrian O'Neill called it a moment ago? So Stuart Eldon was the UK ambassador to Ireland from 2003 to 2006. I spoke to him earlier and asked him how this agreement 100 years ago is still impacting politics right up to the present day? Clearly, the, the relationship between um, Great Britain and Ireland is a unique and really historical one. Uh, and partition casts... Well, it, it sets the stage for the last 100 years of history, really. Um, and it's a very special and unique relationship. 800 years of, of colonial rule, uh, followed by the Civil War, the independence aspirations at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century and through it. Uh, and so uh, I really think the, the relationship is of its own nature uh, and there's nothing else quite like it almost anywhere. Um, in my time, when I was ambassador from 2003 to 2006, uh, it was a good period. Um, in a sense, the, the Good Friday Agreement was in its consolidation phase, it was, it was being implemented. And I think the most important thing was that the people of the two countries realised, and it was very clear that having got the big politics out of the way, in a sense, uh, they realised just how much they had in common. Um, and for me, that sort of realisation of the very close people-to-people -people relationship is fundamental to the way in which uh, one needs to look at this going forward. There's a very, very large community, for example, of um, people of Irish descent living in Britain. Um, and when I was ambassador, there was a realisation that history mattered. History might be uncomfortable at times, but it was what it was, and there was much uh, more to it that, the new, that united the two countries, that divided them. Uh, and if you like, an illustration of that uh, was the willingness of both sides to come to terms with uh, some of the military aspects, particularly the First World War. Uh, and so when I was ambassador in Dublin, the Good Friday Agreement uh, removed the basic territorial claim to the north that the South had. Uh, and so I, I was the first British ambassador, I think, to attend the uh, parade outside the General Post Office in Dublin, marking the 90th anniversary of the Easter Rising. Mm. And for me, that wasn't a problem. There were two countries growing very close together, friends and allies, and that was not an issue. But I well remember uh, seeing the photographs of the reviewing stand outside the, the GPO at the time, making the front page of all the Irish newspapers. Uh, and to see a British ambassador there um, was something unique. Um, and it, in a sense, symbolised the solidification of the relationship. Also, for the first time, um, the Irish government uh, recognised officially the anniversary of the Battle of the Somme. Uh, and attended, um, the president and, and ministers attended a memorial service in the British um, a War Memorial in Dublin. Uh, they issued a postage stamp marking it. And I think that was a recognition of the fact that over 35,000 Irish soldiers died in the first 24 hours of the Battle of the Somme. So there was a consolidation, a reconciliation, a coming to terms with things 
uh, and the fact that really uh, there are enormous personal links between the two countries that will endure and that will continue to matter. Uh, and yet, a uh, hundred years on uh, from the from the Anglo-Irish Treaty uh, and the creation of, of of the Free Irish State, there are still many divisions. There are still many issues that persist in terms of how uh, the Republic of Ireland deals with the UK and vice versa. In terms of some of the current struggles that we're that we're seeing at the moment, thinking of the the Northern Ireland Protocol, does that firmly have its roots in what was agreed or, or not necessarily agreed one hundred years ago? Well. Uh... I mean, as I say, I think the relationship is unique, it evolves, uh, and it's too much of a simplification, I think, to say that anything is particularly based on one thing. Mm. Uh, That sets the historical background, and one sort of works through it. But I think the important thing about current um, uh, Northern Ireland Protocol in, in, in the EU context is that both sides are absolutely unanimous that it's very, very important to preserve the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, And that is what will happen going forward. I haven't detected one iota of change on either side of the importance and primacy of that document. And that will condition um, the further negotiations on the protocol. And what about looking even further? Of course, the... Irish negotiators uh, at the Anglo-Irish Treaty uh, discussions, their hope in the future was for a united Ireland and and that all of Ulster would come under uh, what became the Republic of Ireland. We're going to hear later from somebody in the programme who says that actually they firmly think that that's the train that that we're still in course for. Do you think that is the case as well, that that is the ultimate end point, even if it is many, 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 many years hence? I think it's really important to go back to the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, And uh, basically, unification will not happen without the consent of the people of Northern Ireland. Um, So it might be an aspiration for some. It's obviously not an aspiration for others. Uh, Where it will go remains to be seen. I mean, people aren't going to change their established and entrenched political conditions in a uh, considerations in a day. So some want unification, some don't. Let's see how it develops. Um, But what was clear again during my time in Dublin was the importance of um, economic cooperation and collaboration, not just between the two parts of the island of Ireland, but between Ireland and Britain. And I I just say now, things have changed since 2006, but when I was in Dublin, it was notable that the, uh, the Republic of Ireland became, for a while, the largest inward investor into the United Kingdom. That's Sir Stuart Eldon, UK ambassador to Ireland from 2003 to 2006. Let's continue that point then and look even further forward. Uh, Someone quite very optimistic about the idea of reunification is Kevin Marr, the author of United Ireland, Why Unification is Inevitable and How It Will Come About. He's live with us. Morning, Kevin. Morning, Luke. Um, So what did you make of Stuart's point there? Sort of slightly pouring cold water on that idea or at least sort of kicking it into the unknowns of uh, this needs to go to to a plebiscite and and, uh, it's unlikely that people would back it. The ambassador is absolutely right, of course. The underpinning um, position is uh, baked into the Good Friday Agreement that there can't be any constitutional change to Northern Ireland unless a majority of people there wish it and that we judge the moment when that's put to the test um, on a range of what are fairly opaque um, criteria that people talk about, election results, state of opinion polls, and and what have you. Mm. Um, I think it's undoubtedly the case that we're getting closer to that point. Um, My argument um, about the inevitability of of this is that this this is an issue that is just never going to go away. 
this is this is taking up as we've seen over the last hundred years an enormous amount of time an enormous amount of blood and treasure um to put it to, to put it um, um in, in, that, in that sense as well by the british state it's never going to, it's never northern Ireland is never not going to be an issue um and i think we need to start to game in the scenario that irish unity is a mid-term probability um and that 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 border poll that 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 referendum on its constitutional status is now looming into view and we need to start to prepare mm. for that and to get real about it and i think that's not only a question for people in northern ireland i think that's a question for westminster and our political class which loves to kick the can down the road and has done on irish affairs for 100 years but also in, in dublin as well where they, they tend to look at their shoes a little bit as well um and try and ignore some of these factors but what's going to happen even in the next few months where well, we've got the census um coming into interview um in, in the next the next few weeks um that may show a historic tilt towards the Catholic nationalist um, population becoming the majority population in Northern Ireland. In and of itself, that doesn't really make any difference. Mm -hmm. But of course, Northern Ireland was created in 1921, those six counties, as a, as a, as a Protestant unionist fief. Um, so it's going to be quite significant, a significant symbolic moment, as is the assembly election next May, where it is very likely on all opinion poll evidence that Sinn Féin will top the poll for the first time, being, becoming the largest party in the assembly, partly because the DUP um, is splintering and hemorrhaging votes both to the Ulster Unionists and to the more hardline traditional unionist voice. And Sinn Féin, in a, in a sense, stays still and then therefore becomes the largest party. What that means is that we see a flip and the and Sinn, a Sinn Féin first minister and a unionist deputy first minister. And at the moment, the unionist parties will not even confirm that they would nominate um, a, de a deputy first minister to a Sinn Féin first minister. So we may have a crisis looming in a few months anyway, but these are big symbolic yeah. changes. Just as, of course, we may see, uh, you know, in the, in the next couple of years, Sinn Féin enter government in Dublin as well. So, so I think if, if these kinds of changes start to happen, then I think the sense of momentum will be will be fairly palpable. But, but just getting back to the fundamentals, though, of this question, it's interesting. Proponents of Scottish independence, for example, quite often talk about the added benefits, as they see it, of of, of leaving the United Kingdom. You're talking about here the situation with with Northern Ireland leaving the UK and reunifying with with the Republic of Ireland as being because it's currently not workable and there is some inherent flaw in the way it's set set up. Is that right? Is that how you're you're laying this out? I mean, I think it's a fairly uncontentious uh, point to make that Northern Ireland has just never worked. We've had a hundred years, it's been a hundred year disaster. Um, the first 50 years, as I say, it's created as a, as a, as a, you know, as a Protestant unionist fief. Um, the spoils of the state were kept for the right people, a discrimination, persecution against the Catholic nationalist minority, very well documented in every, every form of every, every area of public policy, housing allocations, jobs, open and rampant discrimination, and a, and a security state as well, which kept Catholic nationalists hemmed in as the enemy within. Now that, 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 that situation lasted 50 years, and it, it, we were blindsided in British politics because this was a, re, a reserved matter. Uh, Northern Ireland mm. had its own prime minister, its own cabinet, its own government, a two-tier um, legislature. Um, issues that were going on there were not allowed to be discussed in the British House of Commons. So, so a lot of these things kind of blindsided Westminster until the civil rights movement in the late 1960s, when, of course, metaphorically and literally, Northern Ireland exploded. And it was the failure of the unionist uh, government to be able to accede to the perfectly reasonable requests of the civil rights movement 
um, and do something imaginative and constructive, which eventually led to the Troubles. And of course, then we get 30 years of the Troubles and 20 years or so of, of stop-start political progress. So, you know, in, in my estimation, it's a 50, 30, 20 century, 50 years of rampant discrimination and failure, 30 years of terrible internecine violence, 20 years of stop-start progress. I mean, Northern Ireland has never worked, is, 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 is the brutal reality of it. And, and actually, Northern Ireland was never meant to last this long. I think that's the other thing that kind of sits there um, when we discuss these issues. Most people signing that treaty 100 years ago just assumed that Northern Ireland would wither on the vine and disappear and be subsumed into a new Irish state. Well, on the Irish side of the negotiations, not so necessarily that Halifax and Churchill thought that, did they? Well, Churchill, of course, tried to get rid of Northern Ireland in 1940 by doing a deal with de Valera mm. about trying to pull Ireland into the Second World War. He's quite happy to get rid of Northern Ireland, as other prime ministers have been over the years as well. Mm. Harold Wilson had a 15-year plan to get rid of Northern Ireland in 1972. That's it from us. Thank you very much for downloading. You can subscribe to this podcast where... Ever you found it, might I recommend the Times Radio app? It's a good place to start. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at LukeJones03. I will be back tomorrow. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.